It is certainly good for us to come together today to be a part of the building process that we are engaged in on a continual basis. As members of the Lord's Church, we are always in construction. Individually, as Christians, we are trying to grow and build on our individual uh, respective faith. And as a church, we're trying to grow together. And as our brother Brian led us in prayer at the outset of our services and our worship to God, we are trying to grow and always be what God wants us to be. I invite you to open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Ezra, to the third chapter, a relatively short chapter where we're going to camp out together today. As Brother Brian has already done, we welcome those of you that are visiting with us, those of you that are new to our midst. We're thankful for your presence very, very much. I'm going to talk today about the process of building and about God's mercy. And so I appreciate our brother David as well as our other song leaders who very carefully try to pick out songs often that go with the theme of the sermon or of what we're trying to address. And this morning we're trying to deal with the subject of God's enduring mercy and spiritual building or spiritual rebuilding or spiritual restoration. And you'll notice that the image, for those of you that are able to see the image, is of a wall, and that is a part of the wall that remains there in Jerusalem today. And we're not necessarily talking about the rebuilding of the wall because that would require us to go to probably a different book, but rather a rebuilding of a different type, both of a physical temple and certainly an application for us as a spiritual temple because as we even read in 1 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4 this morning in our Bible class, we know that we are the Lord's temple. I want us to start by understanding the context wherein these things have transpired and then come away with some very simple applications and observations about the text. I want us to start with the context and what's going on here. You know, the book of Ezra is like a number of other books of the Old Testament that if we're not careful, it'll be flyover material uh, where you get to the big stories. You've got your David and Goliath. You've got the ark. You've got the other ark that somewhere is in there. Uh, you've got maybe a prophet or two that you might highlight. And then let's get to the New Testament. Now, this is a congregation that has elders that every Wednesday evening we come together to study specifically the Old Testament under their direction. And I think that's very wise because we get into books like 2 Samuel in more detail, which is what we're doing currently in our Wednesday night class. But certainly the book of Ezra is an important book. Ezra begins with, in a general sense, the end of the Babylonian captivity where people are coming back to Jerusalem. Sometimes this is called the second exodus of the Jewish people, second as to the first one being the the major one that has its own name in the book of Exodus. We read that the destruction of Jerusalem and the people regarding it and the affairs associated with it found there in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Not always are the books of the Bible positioned in the order in which they transpired chronologically, but it seems very appropriate that the book of Ezra follows the book of 2 Chronicles, at least in this particular instance. This is the return of and the possession of the people as recorded in Ezra chapter 1 and Ezra chapter 2. You'll notice chapter 2 is one of those uh, dangerous areas where if we're not careful... 
we'll just skip it. But there are some details in chapter 2 that are important, even though it has a lot of the people of and the people of and the people of, and there are verses and verses and verses of that. When we get to Ezra chapter 3, what we are understanding here is that we're talking about the welfare or status of the physical city of Jerusalem. But more importantly, it seems to me, the people of Jerusalem and the people of God themselves. And it is certainly a people that have had a lot of things without. And there are three withouts. One of those is that they are without a wall. And that's the story of Nehemiah and a little bit of Ezra where you find a people who do not have a defensive position and are not secure. It is also a people without a temple, and it is time to build, as we have just sang in song uh, a few moments ago. And you recall that even prophets like Haggai would say in verse 2 of the song that we just uh, communicated with one another, that have you all houses to live in, but the Lord's house is not in a proper place and not in its proper position. And it is also a people without an appropriate attitude toward worship. And that's what Nehemiah is about. That's what the latter part of Ezra seems to be about. And that's where chapter 3 brings us together today. So what I'd like to do is to go through and read the vast majority of chapter 3. It's only 13 verses. We'll read it rather rapidly. Then I want us to come back and pretend that we spent a lot of time really delving into chapter 3 and seeing what we can learn from it. It says, When the seventh month had come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren arose and built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening burnt offerings. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, or sometimes it's called the Feast of Booths, as it is written, offered daily burnt offerings in the number required by ordinance for each day. Afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offering and those for new moons and for the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and those of everyone who willingly offered a freewill offering to the Lord. Verse 6, from the first of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. They also gave money to the masons, the carpenters, and of food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, notice the last five or six verses here. In the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem, began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Jeshua, with his sons, the sons of Judah, arose as one to oversee working on the house. And then drop down to verse 11, or verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. 
And all the people shouted with a great shout. And when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple, they wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard afar off. I know that's a lot of material that we covered very rapidly. And sometimes, let me repeat again, we run the danger of looking at texts like these and thinking, well, that's interesting, so they're working on the temple. Let's move on to something a little more exciting. But this is exciting, and this was exciting for the people. And it was an emotional experience where people were shouting with joy while also weeping because of the grandeur of the former temple. Let me suggest to you that there are a lot of lessons here. This is not necessarily a study of Ezra chapter 3 as it is what we learn from Ezra chapter 3. And let me suggest to you that first and foremost, that there's something to be said for the importance of following God's commands. They must always be followed. God's people have to know the commands. And we as people of the Lord understand this, which is why we come together and have Bible study on Wednesday evening. This is why we as families engage in Bible study. This is why we individually study our Bibles, because it helps us to know what the commands are. And so in verse 2, we see that they are offering sacrifices. That was part of a command that goes all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 12. And our brother Brian, just about a year ago, took us through the book of Deuteronomy and did a nice job of taking us through some of these texts. And it says in verse 5, You shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offering of your hand, your vowed offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. So simply put, these people had to know what the command was in order to, upon their return to Jerusalem, be able to fulfill this command in appropriate fashion. Or we made reference to the Feast of Booths was to be observed. We won't take the time to go back and read in Deuteronomy chapter 16 where we see this happening. And this was to commemorate the idea of moving from one place to another and being nomads for that period of 40 years, four decades where they were wandering in the wilderness. And God said to them, I don't want you to ever forget this. I want you to know what you've gone through and I want your Uh, I want you to know what your ancestors went through to the second and third and fourth and fifth generations moving forward. It seems to me that in order for us to have a real spiritual restoration, and here we are a little over halfway through 2022. We started in 2022 by talking about what kinds of people we're going to be and renewing ourselves. And here we are now a little over halfway through the year 2022, and we are a people who need to be restored spiritually because we always need restoration. We always need rebuilding. We always need some sort of revamping. Some of you like those restoration shows that transpire on TV, on HGTV or some of the other channels. You like watching them go in. I've always found it interesting that someone goes and buys a house for a couple hundred thousand. 
and then puts a couple hundred thousand dollars into it. And they have the vision to be able to see that. And they have the vision to be able to see all that from beginning to end. I don't want to have any part of that restoration process. Uh, Wendy will tell you that when it comes to the handyman work in our house, it's for her to do. Although yesterday I put in a doorstop. I installed it with her help. (laughs) But the idea is, is we are always in restoration where God is saying, all right, you look good, but there's a little bit of area where we can clean up, add some paint, uh, maybe do some drywall work, uh, maybe do some new flooring. Let's make some improvements in your spiritual life. That's true with us as a congregation, because even though there are things going well for us, there are areas for us to improve. And even though we are not engaged in Old Testament-style sacrifice, we are still men and women who sacrifice to our God. Romans chapter 12 is a well-known verse where it says that we are to be a living sacrifice to God. Psalm 51 verses 16 and 17, David really is before his time saying, if it were for burnt offerings, I could offer those in droves. But what you want is a broken and a contrite heart. And so we must sacrifice and we must observe the commands of God as well. Matthew 22 is that very famous text where Jesus says, If you want to learn the law, learn these two commandments. Love God as first and foremost and love your brother as himself, as as yourself. And in doing so, you will fulfill the law. So we must always appreciate that commands must be followed. That's one of the lessons that we get from Ezra chapter 3. The other thing that really jumps out to me in our list of uh, three or four or five things is that we've got to work together. And this goes back to the heart of really why I chose Ephesians chapter 4 as being our scripture reading at the outset of our services. People of the Lord, that would be you, that would be me, anybody that wants to serve the Lord, anybody that's signed up to serve Jesus Christ, who's been baptized, we as people of God realize a great restoration comes by working together, and they realize that after the captivity. Things were not good in Jerusalem, spiritually or physically. And so when they get back there, there's time to rebuild. And so again, we go back to our song. We see in verse 1 the idea of a unity of purpose. They came together, if you want to underline in your Bibles, as one man. There in verse 1 of Ezra chapter 3. And then it says that they had confidence over fear as outlined in chapter 3 verse 3. I would suggest to you, and I think you would agree with me because I don't think there's any real debate over this, that we all want to have spiritual restoration as well. Individually, we want God to restore us, but we've got to do our part in order to make that happen. And the same is true for the congregation. The same is true for any congregation of the Lord's people. But we must also work together. Let me suggest to you two aspects that we learn directly from Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 and 3 that translate into the way that we govern ourselves and that we restore ourselves. One of those is we have to be united in our work as a church. I've made reference to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 dozens of times in my life and numerous times while preaching here. And that is one of the greatest charges that a church ever has to keep. And for that matter, one of the greatest things that elders must be aware of is to keep the unity in the spirit of the bond of peace as outlined in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. 
because being unified in service to the Lord matters more than anything else. Even when we have our differences over issues that the Lord says, I don't really care about, we are unified in our work together as a church. We must be, and we must not allow our fears to keep us or dissuade us as a church. Turn over, if you would, to the book of Romans. I I couldn't help but think about the book of Romans chapter 8, which has been nicknamed uh, the most positive chapter in the book of Romans and probably one of the most positive, uplifting, optimistic, forward-looking chapters in all the New Testament. We're just going to read three or four verses here as we think about the idea of do not be afraid. And these people who came back from captivity are now in a place where they could say, we are afraid. We don't see the vision that Nehemiah or Ezra sees. We aren't able to see through the restoration process in the way that the Lord wants us to appreciate. Well, in verse 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Verses 33 through 37 read the following. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? You can almost imagine the people uh, underneath the leadership of Ezra saying, who's going to bring a charge against us? We are God's elect. Who is he who condemns? Verse 34. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 35. Yet in all these things, verse 37, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We as servants have to work together. And there are going to be times in our lives as a congregation where we are not always going to agree with one another on non-doctrinal matters. There will be times where we have disagreements and sometimes sharp disagreements. But we've got to make sure that we never lose sight of it's time to build, it's time to restore, it's time to do whatever we've got to do in order to get the job done for the church and more broadly for the church in a universal sense. Let me suggest to you thirdly that everyone has a job to do. That is a lesson from Nehemiah. That's a lesson from Ezra. That's a lesson from virtually every book of the Bible. But the fact is, is if you go back to verses 7, 8, and 9 of Ezra chapter 3, where we read a few moments ago, everyone had a job to do. We won't reread those verses, but you see people bringing logs. You see people who are engaged in as the sons doing this particular job or this particular job. And the fact is, is each member of the church should have equity, ownership, and a responsibility in the church. Now, that's easier said than done. And it could be that someone who is here this morning may say, I don't know what my role is. I don't know what my purpose is. And I don't know what it is that I bring to the table. I can guarantee you that those who love you, whether it be your shepherds, whether it be those who preach, your Bible class teachers, certainly your parents and those sitting near you can share with you what it is that you do well if you are unsure of your abilities to do well. And it doesn't always have to be something that hundreds of people are aware of. We take for granted that someone comes to this building throughout the week every week and spends hours cleaning. We take for granted that there are always supplies in our restrooms and that when we come in, the Lord's Supper elements are there and ordered and prepared and ready to roll. 
We take for granted all these little things, and I put that in those air quotes because they are not little things. There's really no such thing as a little thing when it comes to service in the Lord's church or in the kingdom. And so we've got to do so through, number one, our mutual concerns for one another. In fact, Galatians chapter 6 seems to talk about this. We talked about this recently in one of our invitation talks. But in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So we do do so through our mutual concerns for one another. We do so through our mutual commitment to teach the lost. 2 Timothy chapter 2 outlines that those of us who have been taught have the responsibility of teaching those who are lost so that those who are then saved can teach those others who are lost. And it's this chain effect of Christianity wherein the power of the gospel is seen and it is exponential in its growth. And we do so thirdly through our mutual contributions to the collective work. Appreciate our brother Bill Bain's sermon a couple of weeks ago, or last week I guess it was, when he talked about the financial side of things and he talked about us as spenders and savers and as servers of the Lord. But certainly we do so through our contributions, not just of our treasure as he kind of focused on, but even with our time. Sometimes the fact is, is people don't need any more money. They need your time. They need your care. They need your concern. Sometimes they do need your financial resources, and we've got to be men and women who are glad to provide that to them. But the fact is, is we have to contribute to one another. That's what the people were doing in the days of Ezra some 2,000-plus years ago when they came back to the city of Jerusalem. Let me suggest to you two more things, and these are my two favorite aspects of the sermon because I I think they really go to the heart of what we are and what we are to be. One is we've got to appreciate that God has got it all under control. And it may seem as if sometimes things are out of our control. And that's because things are out of our control. Because they are in God's control. And we've got to allow God to be God. When you think about the task of restoring the temple rebuilding the wall, and rebuilding the people. It was immense, and it would require lots of physical hard labor. But consider, if you would, the key lesson that we learn about the forethought or the wisdom and the ability of God to see things through to the future from a time past in verse 8. There's a little detail here in verse 8 that I want us to pick up on. And that is, it says in the second month of the second year, it says uh, all the people who had come out to the captivity of Jerusalem began work. And then notice the very last section of verse 8. And appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. You may look at that detail and not ever think anything more about that. And I would too, generally. Except with closer examination... There's a couple of things. The problem is this. Will there be enough Levites to do the work? Well, look in Ezra chapter 2 and verse 40. The Levites, the son of Jeshua and Kadamiel, of the sons of Hodaviah, 74. Then back up to 1 Chronicles chapter 23 
and verse 4. And you say, well, wait a minute. Now we're getting deep into some books that we don't read real often. Well, let's read them and see what they say. But in 23 and verse 4, of these 24,000 were to look after the work of the Lord, 6,000 were officers and judges in this division of the Levites. And so you may have a problem where there aren't enough people to do the work on the temple that needs to be done. And so what happens here is you have a problem, which is then followed by a solution. And that is what I would call God's providential preparations. You see, if you go back and you rewind all the way back to the book of Numbers, which we recently talked about with our brother David Delk, we read that the minimum age of service was that of 30. Then as you fast forward into the book of Numbers chapter 8, the minimum age becomes, do you remember? It becomes the age of 25. And then going back to 1 Chronicles 23, and you have to really put all your pieces together here and come up with all these different things. 1 Chronicles 23 tells us the minimum age for service is 20. I say all that because you may think that back in the book of Numbers, and the book of First Chronicles, as you're getting closer to the restoration of the temple, the restoration of the people, the restoration of Jerusalem, the restoration of the wall, and all the things that are uh, within it, that maybe there aren't going to be enough workers, that maybe God doesn't have a plan. But the fact is, is the whole time God has the entire thing under his control and has got it figured out. And the fact is, is when you think about a local congregation, when you think about your family, when you think about your place in a work environment, when you think about your individual life, God says, I'll make things happen for you, oftentimes in ways that you cannot imagine. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 tells us that God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we could ask or think. We sometimes want to limit God to this box that that we put him in that he's only able to do particular things but God is able to do amazing things with our physical health with our spiritual health with whatever the issue may be let me suggest to you fifthly and finally that we need to appreciate that restoration and reflection go together hand in hand because of the physical and the spiritual restoration of these people Thousands of years ago, God's people had an opportunity to reflect. And this really goes to the last four verses of Ezra chapter 3. And so if you really kind of want to just focus in on those last three or four verses here, we'll appreciate what we're trying to get at here. Let me suggest to you three things about God's mercy and about restoration and about reflection. One of those is this, that reflection was cause for worship. Sometimes when you think about and reflect on your life and how God has gotten you through a difficult point, the only thing that you can do is bow down in prayer and say thank you or sing songs of praise to God. But there in chapter 3 in verse 10, when the builders laid the foundation, it says the priests stood in their apparel and they sang and they praised the Lord and they said, for he is good. His mercy endures forever toward Israel. And that's where the title of the sermon comes from, the idea of God's enduring mercy for his people for all times. When we consider how great God has been to us, 
When we consider how he has provided for us, we too should shout with a great shout. Maybe literally. Maybe sometimes in your own car as you're driving and you're reflecting on how good God has been to you, you can shout privately and say, God, you are great and you have been gracious to me and you have been kind to me and you are loving to me. It is a reflection and restoration of worship. Let me suggest to you, though, that sometimes this restoration or reflection causes us to be men and women of sorrow, where we reflect and say, things were different in the past compared to where they are now. Now, there in chapter 3, verse 12, we see the sorrow of a literal way because of the older men who had seen what had happened in previous generation and compared that to what they saw today. Particularly, verse 12, it says, They wept with a loud voice when the foundation of the temple was laid before their eyes. And then verses 13, verse 13 tells us that there's this mixture of weeping and mixture of shouting. Can you imagine the scene? Not only what you were seeing, but what you were hearing on that particular day. Consider, if you would, the pain that we experience. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 6 seems to talk about this, where there the Hebrew writer, whoever he was, says, If they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. The point that I'm making is simply this. We aren't rebuilding a church building. We aren't rebuilding a temple or rebuilding a wall. But we are rebuilding ourselves individually and collectively. And there are times where you're rebuilding yourself, you're restoring yourself, you're reflecting on yourself, and you say, I don't like what was in the past. That what was in the past was worse off than what I am now, or... Vice versa, you may look back at the past and say, you know what, I was more faithful to the Lord two years ago than I am now. You may say, two years ago, I was reading my Bible more diligently. I was studying and praying more regularly. But I'm not doing that now. I've become weak or I've become weaker. And that may very well be a time for us to reflect and have sorrow. But not to stay in that sorrow, but then to move forward to repent and do better. Because not only is reflection cause for worship and sorrow, but reflection was cause for celebration. And after all, when you go to passages like Romans chapter 5 or Romans chapter 8, that's exactly what Christ did for us. There in Romans chapter 5, where I made reference to just a second or two ago, the scripture tells us that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. That's cause for celebration. No wonder why these people are shouting. I'm convinced that some of the people were shouting because they saw a physical temple being rebuilt. But I'm also convinced that there were people, here, people there who had this such spiritual depth that they said, this is more than just the temple. This is more than just a physical structure. And you think about when the expansion of this building was done, cause for celebration. You think about when church buildings are erected in the Philippines that we help finance, that we contribute our, our, our dollars to. Those are causes for celebration, but not just because of the physical structure going up, but because of the fact that souls will be saved because the gospel is preached and because it can be aided by those structures and be aided by those physical capacities. The fact is, is because of God's incredible, wonderful mercy, 
we can be restored today. God's enduring mercy is that it provides for us spiritual restoration and spiritual rebirth. And as I mentioned at the outset of our study today, and now as we draw ourselves near to a close, the fact is, is we are now over halfway through the year. And it may be a good time for us to kind of take stock and say, okay, here I am, uh, a little over halfway through, how am I doing spiritually? I started out in January, like everybody else, with the resolution to read my Bible more and to pray more and to attend more and to do all the things that need to be done. How are we doing on that? And if it's something that needs some sort of correction or some sort of modification, or shall I say some sort of restoration, let's work on that individually in our private lives and collectively as a church to find those ways to improve, to be what the Lord wants us to be. If you're here and you're not a Christian, then you are not of the people of God that we talked about earlier in our study. And we're, we are pleading with you and asking you to become a Christian yet today while the opportunity still is there for you. Because we do not know what tomorrow will bring. We do not know what tonight will bring. We do not know what the next hour will bring. Life is like a vapor here for a moment, and then it vanishes away. And so we are encouraging you to make right your life today. If, as a Christian, you need to be restored in a public sense because of some public error, because of some public weakness, because of something that you think you can benefit from the prayers of brethren, we'd be happy to help you. If we can help you, strengthen you, and work to restore you, let us know while we stand, while we sing.